0: Hello and welcome to The Spectator Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and I'm joined this week by the Canadian-American journalist and activist Naomi Klein, whose new book, No Is Not Enough, Defeating the New Shock Politics, is a rousing call to arms that is both, well, in our vocabulary, tough on Donald Trump and tough on the causes of Donald Trump. Naomi, welcome.
1: Thank you. Good to see you again, Sam.
0: Well, it's very great to have you. Most of your previous books, you've done three or four, have been, as you said, written quite slowly and painstakingly over five or six years with a lot of research and this one you really went through quite quickly didn't you? Mm-hmm. Why, why was that? Was it just things are moving too fast to do the research in the fastidious way you used to?
1: Well there is an urgency in ter- I felt a real urgency in terms of timing. I wanted to get the book out in time to still be useful in the Trump era and of course we don't know how long that will last but But we we still were fastidious about facts and research. And, you know, I'm really lucky to be able to work with some really great researchers who were you know, helping me at every turn. And one of the things we did with this book that's different is my last book had seventy pages of endnotes, <laughs> <laughs> and and with this book we put the sources online at, at, after the fact, so we were able to do it more quickly. And just the editorial process was was really different. My primary editor, who lives in in Toronto, Louise Dennis, who I've been working with since No Logo twenty years ago almost, basically moved into my house and we edited it <laughs> together. So. You know, we tried to maintain the same editorial standards, but we all had to work really differently. And as you know, with book publishing, there's usually these very long lag times between, you you hand the book in, then everyone relaxes for a month. And, you know, you do take four months to do pages. And we just all worked a lot harder than we usually work. Now, Trump... Book publishers are slackers.
0: They are. are. (laughs) So are authors most of the time. True.
1: Now, Trump
0: seems to me he's almost like the kind of perfect Naomi Klein villain. You know, he's, he's all about a brand. He's a sort of extreme climate change denier. He's absolutely embedded in all the people around him, embedded in you know, what you describe as the shock doctrine, the sort of neoliberal, you know, wait for disaster and then exploit it. Thing. I do
1: like to quote Machiavelli a lot. <laughs> yes.
0: But, and yet you sort of say in the book that you didn't quite see him coming or didn't quite see him coming in the same way, when the way he did. Why was that, do you think?
1: I mean, I don't think that I saw branding going quite as far as it's gone when I, wrote, when I wrote No Logo. I mean, for Donald Trump, it's clear that the presidency is the ultimate brand extension. Not only is he not divested from, from his branding empire, he's expanding it very ambitiously. While in office, his sons are launching new lines of hotels that are explicitly targeted to Trump voters in the United States. At, you know they're increasing fees at the at the clubs, and and um, it's just extraordinary how naked the whole thing is. He seems to basically see the White House primarily as a film set, you know, a place to gaze out the window, looking presidential, and then run off to Mar-a-Lago, you know. <laughs> so. You know, when I wrote No Logo, you know, at the end of that book, it, it sort of introduces tentatively this idea that you know some people even think that we should all be our own brand. You know, the idea that human beings are brands. I mean, that was a relatively new idea. So this has all moved, yeah, faster than than I foresaw. But I guess having spent a lot of time researching. This shift in corporate culture where companies really rejigged how they operated, how they thought about themselves, so that they were not in the business of producing products, but producing images and ideas. That research came in really handy in terms of understanding what Trump is doing and the nature of his conflicts of interest, because I think a lot of the analysis was sort of focused on just kind of like, well, is he trying to sell more products? And it's much more than that. Right, like yes,
0: you say you can't kind of unstir it in that way.
1: No, it's it's so it, because when you're selling, when your business is is not building a building but building a brand, and then selling that brand to other people who build buildings, which is what Donald Trump's business model is. What it means is that every time you and I say the word, word Donald Trump, every time we discuss it, the whole infrastructure of political coverage is now swallowed up in the project of building Trump's brand. We are confirming his power just by talking about him, which is which then increases his brand value. And brand value is something that's totally ephemeral and can really increase in, infinitely, right? So as we do this, his sons go off and think, well, maybe we could charge a bit more. <laughs> <Right>?
0: <laughs> so so it's, a it's a bit of a catch-22
1: for journalists.
0: <laughs> it is. We can't quite get away from it. One of the very interesting things you say in the book is you you connect Trump and wrestling as this this sort of almost basic trope. Can you talk a bit about how you how you do that? How you see that coming out?
1: So I think one one of the things that's really tricky about Trump is that he's not he is not playing by the rules of politics. He's playing by the rules of reality television, by the rules of branding, by these forms that mix a sort of a pretext of reality with uh, an understanding on the part of the viewers that it's all fake right so that I mean if you think about how we consume reality television those of us who have watched it you know I mean it's everyone's in on it right I mean we like you, you understand that the producers are egging everybody on behind the scenes and that you know it's all been sliced and diced and the order's been changed right and and yet it's still kind of entertaining and there's still this sense that there's something maybe authentic about it or because, because people developed a relationship with Donald Trump watching him on The Apprentice, they have relationships with the Kardashians and along a similar lines, they feel that they know them. And wrestling is another one of these strange fake realities, right? Where the viewers understand it's all rigged, it's all decided, before who's going to win and that somehow makes it more enjoyable right and so trump you know a lot of people don't know this but trump is in the wwe hall of fame he has appeared (laughs) in the ring at least eight times up as himself and performing Donald Trump the billionaire like he'll shower the the crowd with dollar bills and and pound uh, some other billionaire you know I mean and or we should CNN
0: put, most recently you know
1: right and that that image came from the battle of the billionaires that he had staged with Vince McMahon who's head of WWE and I mean this is Trump is so much a part of wrestling culture that he actually appointed Vince McMahon's wife Linda McMahon to head up his, uh, his the, the office of small business and enterprise. So yeah, but I think he used all the tricks of the trade of reality television and pro wrestling on the campaign trail to great effect, right? So the little nicknames he gives for people, like that's classic wrestling. Like
0: Lion Ted. Lion Ted, Hillary. Killer
1: Hillary. I mean, and then and then getting, riling up the crowd against journalists, like that's WWE stuff, right? Like you, like you, th- there's always the villains and then the crowd just turns on the villains and it's all part of the fun. You know, it's fake, but it's also not fake. It, there's, a, there's a way that you can enjoy the emotion, I guess, with out any of the stakes because, you know, people aren't really being hurt. And so, yeah, he's con- he did it on the campaign trail to great effect. And he's continuing to do it in office. He needs his villains. I mean, you know, if you're going to be a hero, you need the villains. And the villains in his story are the press, even more than the Democrats.
0: That phrase that gets bandied around a lot, at least on this side of the Atlantic, I think of, the, of this post-truth. Do you think that's a, a useful way of thinking about What we're going through now
1: well i think it is useful to understand that trump that the forms in which trump has excelled whether it is advertising whether it is reality television whether it is wrestling are all post-truth genres like they are all about everyone understanding that they're being shown a highly 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 produced version of the truth right? And and just sort of accepting that. I mean, that's what advertising is. That's what reality television is. That's what wrestling is. And he is absolutely applying that or trying to apply that to politics, right? And so he wanted more people to have shown up to his inauguration than did actually show up. So his response to that is to just present the press with a different camera angle um, that sort of makes it look like more people are there than are actually there, and that that's a reality. Tell that w- that's the way a reality television oh. producer would approach a scene that didn't turn out the way they wanted it. Like, can we get another angle on that? Can we slice and dice it? The question is, right? Can you do it? Because people know whether they have a job or not. You know, they know whether they have health care or not. So, you know, what happens when Donald Trump's show, which is about slicing and dicing reality as if we're in a post-truth era conflicts with directly with people's lived experiences and it's a little too early in the Trump presidency to really have an answer to that question yeah. it's clear that he thinks he's going to be able to finesse it and just sort of you know put on more of a show about you know a few jobs that he's created or what whatever it is unless you really believe he's going to bring the jobs back you know if you really believe he's going to bring back manufacturing jobs that supported middle class family that support middle class families I don't believe that he even believes that I think he believes that he's going to be able to do what he's always been able to do which is put on a show (laughs) and 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 sort of snow everyone now how much do you think
0: I mean because it does seem to be a subject of debate and you've said that the book you say one of the ways you can kind of attack him is to attack his brand to Mm -hmm. to say you know that the president Bannon hurt him you know all this how much do you think he is as it were a useful idiot for the powerful interests around him and how much do you think he's actually
1: smart so i mean this question of whether or not he is smart you know enough to understand the use of the show is i, I don't think you have to be that smart to understand <laughs> you know i don't I, I think this is a really old trick and it's something that he's done his entire career in terms of dating dating back to the 1980s when he really made his name and went from being you know a pretty small player in new york's real estate scene to being a national celebrity what did it was him turning his private life and indeed his private scandals and what most people would be embarrassed about into a live-action soap opera he cheated on his wife he you know he had an affair with a woman named marla Maples and rather than sort of being ashamed of that about being caught he fed it he fed stories to to the tabloids he was in the press every single day and he loved it and he as he said to an interviewer at the time the show is trump and it's sold out everywhere right yeah. so i think he has understood from the earliest moments of his career that there is value in sort of feed feeding you know red meat to the press and that it's very useful in terms of distracting from things you don't want them looking at, right? I mean, this is a man who has had many bankruptcies, you know, under his belt. And he's always responded to the unsoundness of his business model by putting on some kind of distracting show. You know, in the book, I describe what he did when his casinos in Atlantic City were on the verge of bankruptcy, and he was about to lose his investors and his his bankers. He invited them all to Atlantic City and came out to the theme song of Rocky with satin shorts and boxing gloves on and punched through a paper wall and said, I'm back, right? So he hadn't fixed his business, but I mean, he really does believe that he can distract. (laughs) Yeah, so the question is, can he do that with the American economy? You know, I think he thinks he can. So yes, I believe, I do believe that Trump believes that his constant tweeting and things that this sort of pundit class is horrified by, is a useful distraction from parts of his policy agenda that don't bear scrutiny, that are in fact in diametrical opposition to how he campaigned. And I think that Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan understand that even better than he does, right? Because he, you know, they, they have policies that are actually not popular. They've seen the polling, you know, they know that people want health care. They know that, you know, getting rid of the estate tax is not, you know, while, is, while very popular with the rich is not a popular policy. And, and Trump has become, you, you can call him a useful idiot. He's certainly a useful show for the Republican economic project. You know, they may get through the deepest tax cut since Reagan with almost no scrutiny, because all eyes are focused on, you know, whatever the latest tweet scandal is, how long he shook a world leader's hand, and indeed the Russia investigation. Yeah. Nothing can compete with that.
0: No. And part of this book is, obviously, it's not just a sort of, this is what's wrong with Trump and his project, but is, this is how people on the left should organize to resist, or in fact, yeah. all people in your uh, should be organizing to resist. And I'm throwing back a bit to... One of the really striking things about No Logo, when you wrote it, you said that you came politically of age, unless I misrepresent you, through that period when what got called PC or politics of representation and identity was very important. And you said, you know, we missed a trick. We were arguing about what we should call things. We should argue about the right words for things. And the material base, you know, in Marxist terms, was massively shifting and corporatizing and the jobs were being outsourced and that, you know, you suddenly went, we've woken up and the rug has been pulled out from under us. We seem to be living through a phase in which the politics of identity is kind of back. Do you think that's something that's dividing the left?
1: I think that there is still this really strangely ahistorical debate that goes on about whether or not everybody should focus on class and economics or identity as if you can separate racial injustice, gender injustice from an from from an economic context. And so I am arguing against a certain kind of identity politics, which is all about let's change the representation of people at the top of society. Let's have more women and people of color at the highest reaches of power in office, you know, in in boardrooms, while simultaneously not offering very much at all to close systemic gaps. So, um, you know, I, I think, you know, I think our institutions should represent our countries, you know, our societies, of course, they should at every level, our universities, our media, and and, ge- and, and, pol- and politics, and generally do a spectacularly poor job of doing so. And it, and, and I don't think that those, I think when, when we do win battles for better representation, I don't think that they're simply symbolic victories like i think having an african american president for 8 years was tremendously important to a, a you know entire generation of people who expanded their imaginations about what was possible that matters i'm not saying it doesn't matter but i am saying that if it isn't accompanied by economic policies that are specifically designed to close the gap between workers of color and 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 white workers, it's not just going to close itself because there happen to be you know more people of color in positions of power, right? And I think that this kind of trickle down identity politics is what the Democrats have been offering for a long time, and that sort
0: of analog to the trickle down. Well, we I and I think I, I think
1: it works office. about yeah. as well, <laughs> you know. And and so I think that there's been. Uh, you know I think it's part of why a lot of people have checked out from politics because it isn't actually meeting their needs so you can have you know more you can have a this big celebration of having the first the potentially the first president women president of the United States and have at the same time have that that candidate have very little to say to women workers who are overwhelmingly the ones in low-wage precarious jobs and indeed, Hillary Clinton has been opposed to the movement's calling for a living wage, a $15 an hour living wage. So I guess it's sort of like they, they've tried to do identity politics, as Martin Luther King Jr. said, on the cheap, you know, like when he, you know, one of his last speeches, he said, the, the victories that we've won so far for integration at the lunch counters, you know, in society, those are the victories on the cheap, it doesn't cost, it doesn't cost the the American economy much to grant us integration the real cost comes now when we build the, the better schools in our communities when we create the better jobs and that's the unfinished business of liberation because that you know he that second part really was interrupted by the neoliberal revolution yeah. and the dismantling of the public sphere
0: another thing that's changed since you know you started writing about logos and branding and this sort of thing is that there used to be the thing that the visibility of a brand was what made it vulnerable mm-hmm. and that the visibility of political messages made yeah. it vulnerable. I mean, how much is that disrupted by the fact that now it's not like there's a big political ad campaign you can mock because they're micro-targeting swing voters through Facebook, you know, and this huge accumulation of data. Is there a way to disrupt that?
1: Well, yeah, it's, I think it's a good, really good question because, well, I think there's there's two issues around are we talking about corporations or are we talking about the Trump brand, Right. And and I he is a corporation, but I mean one of the things that happened while I was writing this book was was Pepsi put out that ridiculous ad, sort of appropriating the imagery of Black Lives was, Matter, and it was Kendall like Jenner. give the world yeah. yeah give give like a protester hands a cop a a diaper. But what was interesting about it is that it was a bit of a throwback to the sort of advertising we we saw a lot of in in the '90s of sort of appropriating revolutionary imagery but you know within 2 hours of this ad coming out there there was like hundreds of of parodies and, uh, uh, that had been produced online but and you know they had to apologize and all of that so the speed with which you can mess with so you like that quite optimistic
0: about social media
1: well th- but I, but I think that but, but I think your point is really good in that just because that's happening it's happening within a bubble, right? It's happening within a bubble, largely of people who agree with you, and you can have the illusion that you're have, that you're really changing things, but but you're you're really speaking to yourself. So I think you know Trump's brand has been jammed very effectively, but largely within the bubble of people who are, who oppose Trump. Whereas within the, the pro-Trump bubble, they're doing their own. I mean, yeah. that CNN uh, meme that, you know, that caused all the, all the uproar, that was produced by a Trump supporter. And that was their version of ad busting, right? Putting the CNN logo yeah. on Vince McMahon's face and pounding the hell out of it, right? <laughs> so it's not clear whether the, <laughs> I mean, it's clear that everybody's doing it, but it's not clear that we're reaching outside of our, of our bubbles. And I think, you know, I think there are ways of, of, of damaging the Trump brand, given his outrageous decision to continue to profit from his entire business model and to expand it while while he's president. And we are starting to see that. I live in Toronto, and and the Trump Tower in our city, which has been quite sort of plagued with scandals, it just announced that they are detrumping themselves and taking the, the the big giant Trump letters off the building. And you know, I think if this started to happen, you know, from Manila to you know Dubai, it would really it would really piss them off. It would piss them off, and that any that's good in and of itself, I think. But ultimately, you know, I think the only thing that is going to be meaningful in defeating not just Trump but the politics that produced him is not attacking his brand but actually progressives having a better product to compete with it, if you will.
0: And speaking of reaching inside bubbles and outside bubbles, I mean, there are a number of readers of this magazine and a few contributors who, you know, believe that anthropogenic global warming is a crock and that neoliberal policies, you know, there is no alternative...
1: How would you... And they'll still believe were, that when they're like underwater. <laughs> they might do. I mean, is your position <laughs> that
0: there's no talking to these people or do you believe, you know, you have to put them in a sort of just say these are the basket of deplorables, we aren't going to win those guys round or do you think there's a way of, you know, making your case to them?
1: I don't think I'm the best person to make the case to them. I think some people are are, are reachable. It really depends on how entrenched their identities are in protecting the economic worldview that is in conflict with climate change. Like I, I don't believe what is f- fueling climate change denial on the right, and it is overwhelmingly on the right. Like There are almost no people on the liberal and left side of the spectrum who deny climate change anymore. So there's this incredibly close and tight correlation between hardcore belief in in laissez-faire economics, okay, the idea that the market can do no wrong, and that we should all step out of the way, and a denial of the reality of the, of the overwhelming scientific consensus that, that climate change is happening. So why is that, right? And the argument that, that, I, that, I, that I make is that um, the, two, the two facts are, irrecon- or you know, the, two, the, the two realities are irre- irreconcilable. Like, if, if climate change is real, and it is, then of course we have to intervene in the market. This is a spectacular market failure. Not only do we need to regulate corporations and tell them that they have to get off fossil fuels in a a huge hurry, and by the way, market-based solutions like cap and trade are not going to do what we need to do as quickly as we need to do by any stretch of the imagination. We also need massive investments in the public sphere. It's completely irreconcilable with the logic of austerity because what we need to do is transform our energy grids, our transportation systems how we live in cities this is expensive so where's the money going to come from we're going to have to tax the rich okay so like the whole thing just starts to crumble right so the way a lot of people try to deal with this in terms of addressing your issue of like how can we reach how can we reach those those climate change deniers is to engage in their own form of denialism and say, well, actually we can do this with market-based solutions and cap and trade and you won't, you'll not you will barely notice. We'll completely remake industrial society and <laughs> we'll just leave the whole thing to the market. <laughs> That's not actually gonna work. So this is why I believe we have to engage in a, in a real battle of ideas. And if that worldview of leaving everything to the market and cutting back and cutting back the state is irreconcilable with continuing to have a habitable planet for humanity then those ideas have to change. How
0: optimistic yeah. are you that they will? I mean, I think one of the most
1: look, the Tories are are backing away from austerity. Anything's possible. <laughs> <laughs> Your central bankers are on strike. I don't know what's happening in this country.
0: So. Uh, I don't either. <laughs> Nobody does. But I was going to say one of the moving and slightly pessimistic parts of the book is you describe, which you know, since you started work as an activist, you've had a you know, you've got a four-year-old son, Toma. And you describe swimming with him in the Great Barrier Reef and seeing it bleached out and, you know, this kind of bums you out a bit. Um, but then you say, we've got four years to completely remake the world, more or less.
1: We've got four years to get off the road we're on. We don't have four years to completely remake the world. We've got more time than that. But, but we do need to get our emissions pointing in the right direction. And it's a terrifyingly short window. I think the good news is that even when I, you know, I wrote a book about climate change that came out almost three years ago now. And the momentum towards that shift you know, is, is accelerating. The talk of getting to 100% renewable energy well before mid-century is something that you, know, you used to hear from the most radical climate activists, and now you hear it from the mayors of large American cities and you know very bold policies like bans on fracking, no new fossil fuel leases. I mean, we're hearing that from major economies like France. So there is a shift, it's not enough, but I think it is changing.
0: There's a lovely bit in your acknowledgements which would serve as the last word. It's, Thomas seems to have inspired this book in one way. What's his verdict on Trump?
1: Um, <laughs> his, his verdict is Donald Trump is too rude to be president. But he also has started to, to to say, he has a little song that he's written called Why Is Everybody So Rude to Donald Trump? Oh. But then he's added a, a lyric, which is because he's so rude to everybody. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's think, a Hegelian dialectic, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> Naomi Klein, thank you very much indeed.
1: Thank you, Sam.